0: Thank you for allowing me to be here today. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer for another moment. Father, indeed, we thank you for this day, for the sun and the rain, flowers, and yes, even this wonderful air that we get to breathe. Thank you for the, each person that's here today, for the great privilege that we have to gather together in freedom to worship you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Pastor Jim Howard has been leading us through a study of the book of Philippians, and I get to talk with you today about the very best verses. In the first three chapters, Jim is focused on the topic of what it means to be a servant. How do we develop a servant's heart? So briefly, by way of review, we can say that in this book, Paul is giving instructions to the church on how to live together, how to serve together, and how to care for one another. Remember, Jim asked us if we wanted to be a servant church or just a group of churchgoers. And I think that's really a good question. If we want to be a serving church, then we must begin by serving one another in the church. Paul said to his friends in Philippi that he was confident that he, God, who began a good work in you, plural, will carry it on to completion until the day when Jesus Christ finally comes back again, Philippians 1.6. Well, God has begun a good work in this church and in the church universal in the hearts of every single believer. I'm sure that there's lots of visitors here today, and I just want you to know that you really are welcome in this community. When I talk about the church today, I'm not talking about just Dillon Community Church. I'm talking about your home churches Like in Texas or Florida or Oklahoma or any other foreign land. (laughs) Every church should be a servant church. Serving the community, serving each other, serving Christ everywhere. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, in the big family of God. So also by way of review, let me remind you that Paul, when he writes this letter to the Philippians... He's in prison. He's not only in prison, he's in a Roman prison in the first century. And this is not a nice place to be. He's accused of sedition because of his faith in Jesus Christ and because of his very conflictive message that he's been preaching all across the Roman Empire. The city of Philippi was a strategic city in the vast Roman Empire, and the ruling Gentiles were very happy to incarcerate this rebel preacher, this minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, this letter, Philippians, has, has more about joy than any other letter in the entire New Testament. That is, the two Greek words that we have translated into the English for joy are used six times just in this one tiny little letter. Then Paul also uses the word koinonia three times in this letter. Koinonia may be a familiar word to you. It's usually translated into the English as fellowship. But it is a deep, lasting, unspeakable partnership among diverse people that's rooted in our relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. In, in Philippians 3.10, in fact, Paul says that we are the fellowship of sharing in his, that is, Christ's suffering. We are a fellowship that suffers together, that celebrates together. Finally, it can be used as the word communion, koinonia. Which is why it's usually used as a familiar word for that innate, that beautiful, meaningful celebration that we do with the bread and the cup. And we do that every week, and we do that together. In this partnership of believers, known as the church, we celebrate together, and yeah, we suffer together. So what is joy? Joy is not something that you attain like an achievement. It can be very, very different from happiness. It is an innate satisfaction, a deep delight, a wonder, and a peace. It's something that's already there within you. God put it within you. It's part of being a human being to experience joy. You don't have to look for it. It's right there. So, does that surprise you? Have you suppressed your joy and pushed it down so far that you forgot that it was there? Sometimes I'm around people who don't have a joyful bone in their body. Their negativity and their bitterness just leaks out of them like rude language and anger and resentment. Offensive actions and behaviors. I don't want to be around them. But let me just say an offensive person without joy is usually a wounded person. Yes, I cannot help but feel joy when I look outside at those mountain peaks, when I watch an osprey fly, when I take in a whole field of columbines at Cataract Lake. We are so blessed. Sit silently sometime and watch a toddler, maybe your grandchild, use their imagination and play. It's beautiful. It's so joyful. We have so much to be joyful about. That's what we're all looking for, right? Joy and happiness in this life. Okay, so let's get real. There are those things in our lives every day that steal our joy. There are things that obviously burst my bubble. Finances, the stock market, struggles, hardships, disease, disasters. Life in a fallen world can blot out our joy in a second. It takes away our pleasures, our delights. It tarnishes our picture-perfect world. Well, I finally figured out that the Christian life is not all about me. How about that? It's not all about me. Being a Christian is not all about me and my pleasures. When God saves us and redeems us through our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not only for our benefit. Why did God save you? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Was it just to make your life pleasant? secure heaven for you? When you actually stop and think about it, you realize that your salvation is to put you into a community of other people who are saved. God saves people so that we can be in a community. The body of Christ. The church. Each one of us is part of a whole. Whether you're an eye or a foot or a hand or a kneecap. All of us are a body of Christ, and we are not complete unless each part is with us. If we return to Philippians chapter 2, we recall Paul's challenge to us to be united, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider, consider others above yourself. It is choosing to look not only at our own interests, but also in the interests of others. It's not what you get out of church. It's what you put into it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord in, his, in this way, my dear friends. The church of Philippi was certainly his joy and his crown. That's kind of like saying that your grandchildren are the apple of your eye. With great love and deep commitment, he wrote to these dear friends, encouraging them in spite of all the struggles that they were going through in their culture. We are not expected to go through this life without the strength and the love and the support of a community of like-minded people. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. The church is a collection of diverse people living together every single day within the will of the same God and the direction of the same Holy Spirit. Paul told the Philippians to stand firm in their commitment to one another because Christ is transforming us. Philippians 3.21 We can all stand firm together because we are all being changed. Our beloved friends gather around us, support us, help us during our own transformation so that we can all share in the likeness of Christ. Being a church means being a lifeline and a support system for all Jesus followers as we journey together through this life. Now for a moment, let's jump down to verse 4. I think you already know this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. You knew that already, didn't you? Well, this is a reflection back to verse 3-1, where he begins his instructions on rejoicing. And he does repeat himself again in 4-1. Rejoice in the Lord together. He gave this command to the entire church at Philippi. We can look back and see how we can gather together into the body of Christ and we rejoice together through our sufferings, our trial, through cancer, through eye disease, new babies, divorce, the loss of a job, surgeries. We can do this together. Dave and I, my husband Dave and I, moved to Summit County three years ago from the Denver area. We decided to find a church before we found a house to live in. I went to the internet and I found the Dillon Community Church website. And so I went there and I discovered that your pastor was none other than Jim Howard, whom I had met at Denver Seminary and I already knew Jim. Well, so that was a no-brainer. We church and we found a wonderful realtor by the name of Debbie Nelson. And she helped us find just exactly the right house. It's a God thing. And I can say without a hesitation that true joy is found in being a part of a church. Church is every single day of the week, not just Sundays. It is people striving together, standing firm together, changing the world, and not allowing the world to change us. We start by being servants to one another, and then we can be better servants to those people who are outside of the church. If you think about this, suffering is our connection to the hostile, unbelieving world. Everybody suffers. Trials and suffering are unavoidable, and everyone is affected by the afflictions of this earth. But we have something wonderful to offer those who are going through hardships and disappointments. We have the joy of the Lord. That is how we can do it always. Because we can do it together. The final part of chapter 4 goes on to tell us what it means to rejoice corporately. What does corporate joy look like? Well, Paul points to three ways of in being a church. Joy is overcoming dissension, it's overcoming fear, and it's overcoming incorrect thinking. Those three. First, corporate joy means handling dissensions and disagreements in a gracious, loving manner. Let's read about two women in Philippi who are going through a terrible argument. Verses 2 to 5. I plead with... I practice this. I practice this. Yodia. They could have been Jane and, and Susie, and I would have been much happier. Yodia. And I plead with Sintiki. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> It's all Greek to me, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion. Oh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion. Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So, interestingly enough, something happened between these two women that was important enough for Paul to actually put it in this letter, a letter that would have been read publicly, not only in this church in Philippi, but in a lot of other churches as well. I mean, how embarrassing is that? But Paul knew that it was important for these two ladies to reconcile. In Paul's day, friendship carried a sense of competition. In the Roman culture, friends were just folks who could get you to, where to wherever it was that you wanted to go. It was always about reciprocity. I need to be honored and you need to be shamed. That's the Roman culture. But as a part of Paul's leadership team, these ladies could not do that. They had to reconcile for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the unity of the church. The honor of the gospel was far more important than their own honor and recognition. But Paul was very tactful in the way that he addressed the serious disagreement that was going on in the midst. He neither condemns either woman, nor does he take sides in the dispute. No one is said to be right or wrong. In fact, we see the connection to verse 5 where he says that the word gentleness, you need to reconcile with gentleness. Correction in the church must be done with gentleness, not judgmentalism. Furthermore, he asked the church leaders to come and help him to overcome this dissension. Help reconcile the church. He hopes that someone by the name of genuine yoke fellow or true companion can help reconcile their differences, which is really a weird way of saying my fellow workers in the church. Then he mentions other church leaders like Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, both men and women, whose loyal service and whose loyal names are only known to God. Anyway, Paul knew that dissension and disagreements should not divide the body of Christ, that the church leadership should take the lead in diffusing quarrels and misunderstandings and arguments. Too often, little injuries become festered. They become deep, unforgettable, and irreversible. Thank God for church leaders working together who attempt to reconcile the arguing parties, and the disputes before they get way out of hand. In spite of our stubbornness, when we reconcile, when it happens in the church, it is a very good reason to rejoice. Celebrate the resolution. Joy comes from redemption, from reconciliation, and from forgiveness, and putting the interest of others before the interest of our own. So, Paul is rejoicing with the church that they are able to resolve these issues in a way that helps them to become stronger as a church. His point is that if we end disagreements and squabbles for the sake of the gospel, then Jesus is honored and glorified. Frankly, it's not a very good witness to the unbelieving world, to have people arguing and disagreeing within the church. Second, Paul shares a second reason why the church should rejoice together, and that's verses 6 and 7. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord is near his people, verse 5, the church does not have to have anxiety in this complicated and condemning world. Again, it is the psalmist who says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. Anxiety and prayer are polar opposites. They are opposing forces in the Christian's life. The antidote for anxiety is prayer. Be anxious for nothing. Pray in all circumstances, asking, petitioning God with thanksgiving for his protection, for his guidance, for his wisdom. Not only in our personal lives, but for the entire church. Fear. (laughs) Many of you have lived or traveled in a foreign country. And you know that such an experience can be terrifying and terrific. We lived in Scotland for three years. And when we did that, everything was different. The toothpaste was different. The language was different. You know, a Band-Aid is a plaster. Can you imagine putting a plaster on your arm? Yeah, that's a Band-Aid. Everything was different, but God gave us a gift. And that gift was our Kirk. That's Scottish for church. The people in our Kirk were our solid rock and our foundation. They loved us. They supported us. Everything that we did, they came alongside us and corrected us and taught us how to say good Scottish words. The people were so good to us. But let me tell you about fear. Fear is getting driving a car on the wrong side of the road with a steering wheel on the wrong side of the car, and you arrive at a roundabout, and you go in a circle the wrong way, and you have no idea what lane you're supposed to be in or how you get out of this circle. That's Fear. And yet, our friends in the church lent us their car so that we could go do it. And that, my friends, is faith. Faith overcomes fear. Within the church, we pray for each other and with each other. The fullness of God's love and care for each one of us is truly beyond our comprehension. It is God who guards our hearts and our minds. That is, when we pray with gratitude as a church, we receive from Jesus Christ his peace. We can all stand firm because the same Holy Spirit is in every single believer. We can contend together for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Philippians 1:27-28. Joy is the honor of praying with one another, suffering and celebrating and keep going with each other without fear. Now, our society will tell you that the organized, institutionalized church in America is failing. The perception is that people are just leaving the church in droves. In fact, Christian church is on the brink of crashing, not only in America, but in Europe and in the UK. We are now living in what has been called the post-Christian era. We are told that the church is failing to meet the needs of all the new coming up generations, all the young people. Morals are failing, and the young people are refusing to go to church. But let me tell you something. The church is not failing. Emergent churches are flourishing, and in many places, young people are coming to Christ in droves, and they are serving Christ all over the world. Almost 400 little lives were in this very room last week during the Vacation Bible School, and they learned about Jesus. 400 little people. Now that's a bright hope for the church. What Paul is saying to us is, you don't have to worry about the church. God guards and protects His church. He's not done with us. He's not going to desert us. God will never let His church perish. I can tell you that today the Christian church is blossoming and expanding in leaps and bounds all over the globe. John Stott gives an example of a Christian missionary work in China. When the communist government took over China, all the foreign missionaries, especially the Christian ones, had to leave. There were perhaps only about a million Protestant believers in the whole nation of China. A decade into the 21st century, there are about 70 million Christians, believers, within the communist regime. How does that happen? It happens because the true gospel message is preached and God protects his church. We don't have to fear. Third, there is joy in the Lord when we think rightly as individuals and as a church. Verses eight and nine. Verses eight and nine. Yeah. Finally, brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such. I love this list. Paul was one of those people who wrote lists all the way through his letters. If you go to Galatians, you can see the list of the fruit of the spirit. Okay, he's a list guy. I'm a list guy. I love lists. But I really love this list. Paul wants everyone in the church to think heavenly thoughts, not about earthly things, which is Philippians 3.19. In our thought patterns, we need to seek truth in an age of suspicion, admirable things instead of disrespectful things. We need to seek the right And not the unethical. We need to seek purity in a culture where innocence has been lost. We need to seek what is lovely instead of what is corrupt. And we need to seek excellence in a time of mediocrity. Friends, think about these things. Paul's second command in verse 9 Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So he asked us to think about the right things and then put them into practice. Paul understood the power of thoughts that can be affecting on a person's life. Whatever occupies your mind, will sooner or later affect your speech, your behavior, and your actions. If we read nothing but corruption and negativity or watch only disparaging news, it is most likely that the only thing that we will give out is depression, criticism, and harmful thoughts. I hope that most of you saw the recent movie, I Can Only Imagine, I hope it also made you aware of the damage that can be done to other people by inaccurate thinking and angry, cruel words. Let me also remind you of the erroneous thinking about black people and slavery in our very own country, and you know what? In our churches. Over the years, the nation, our nation, has seen unspeakable, senseless acts of violence against innocent people as a result of flawed and invalid thinking. Racism and prejudicial judgments are anything but lovely, admirable, praiseworthy thoughts. Incorrect thinking and derogatory words can brutally murder a church. Words spoken to each other, especially words spoken to young vulnerable teenagers and children are far more injurious than the modern weapons of opiates and guns. Paul saw the damage that can be done with disparaging and dangerous thoughts towards one another, especially in the church. He says that we need to sow seeds of beauty, not rumors of ugliness. We need to see loveliness in people instead of always seeing their faults and their shortcomings. Speak good and noble things. Don't pass on crude and inflammatory jokes and insinuation, not orally or on the internet, on social media. <sighs> Encourage admirable deeds in your family and in your coworkers. Do not always criticize, and rebuke. With Paul, it is my deep desire that human hatred and injustice in our society will come to an end quickly, and it has to start in the church. We all must allow God to control our thoughts, as well as our behavior and our actions. Finally, Paul concludes the section of his letter by saying that if we put into practice what he has taught us, we will not only have corporate joy, we will have the peace of God individually and as a church. So I thank God for this church. I just want to thank you. I want to thank the staff, the leaders. I want to thank the musicians that are up here week in and week out. Thank you to the technological geniuses that sit back there and never get any recognition. Thank you to the men, to the women, to the kids, to the youth. What a joy it is to be a church together, to learn together, to grow together. And I hope that we will always be a serving rejoicing church amen amen Amen. let us pray father god thank you for this day that we can all rejoice together in your beautiful world and in your fellowship of believers we ask three things today lord first we would ask that you would heal any wounds anywhere in any church that we might have And make us into a loving, forgiving, caring church. Second, make us your hands and feet in the world. And make us your heart as a demonstration of your love and your grace in your family, in our church, in the world. Third, grant us humility as we eagerly serve you and serve others not for our own honor and our own glory, but for yours. We love you, Lord. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we promise to rejoice in you always. Amen.